Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? They answered, The emperor's. Then he said to them, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Dr. F.W. Bear, in his commentary on this passage, says, Once again, we have strange bedfellows. Herodians and Pharisees didn't like each other at all. The one thing that pulls them together at this point is their mutual hatred of Jesus, an attempt to get rid of him. The Herodians were followers of their king, Herod Antipas, one of the sons of Herod the Great, Herod Antipas ruled only at the pleasure of the Roman Empire. They could dismiss him, move him out of the palace any time they wanted. So Herod Antipas was very careful to try to please the Romans. And those who followed Herod Antipas, you can be sure, came down on the side of Roman taxation. If the Romans want tax, we pay tax. The Pharisees were those committed to doing the Torah really dedicated to doing the Torah. If it said tithe what one has, it didn't mean not only one-tenth of the herd of goats or sheep or cattle. It meant one-tenth of the flavorings they had, the seasonings they had of mint and cumin and thyme and rosemary, etc. That these two would be together? This tax was called in Greek kinsos, from which we get the word census, it was a head tax imposed upon the people of Galilee and Judea when Jesus was about 10 years old. The Romans decreed that all little boys and girls, when they came to the age of adulthood, puberty, usually about age 12, they would have to start paying the tax and they would have to pay it every year until they were 65. Just because you were. Just because you benefited from being a part of the Roman Empire, you would pay from the time you were about 12 until you were 65. The Herodians said, absolutely, pay the tax. The Pharisees hated the tax, did not want to pay it. So if Jesus said, don't pay, then the Herodians would go and tell the Roman officials and he would be in serious trouble. If he said, do pay, then the ordinary common folk who had flocked to hear him would have been very discouraged, disappointed, and probably would have dropped off in big numbers. So it's a tough test. Let's take a look at the passage. First of all, I think that these Pharisees and Herodians are flattering Jesus. I don't think they're sincere in what they're saying. But what's really amazing is that everything they say about him was absolutely true. Four things they said. First of all, we see that you are sincere. Our word sincere comes from two Latin words, sinna, sera. Sinna is without. Sera is a word for wax. 
uh, we've been to Florence. We've seen the magnificent statue of David. I cannot amaze, imagine one like Michelangelo who could see this huge piece of white marble and so painstakingly chip away until one has the beautiful, magnificent statue that one has. Not every sculptor was so talented as Michelangelo, and those who were not so good at it would often cover their mistakes with wax. It would last long enough to get it sold, but in the hot Tuscan summers, the wax would melt and run, and then you knew it was not Cena Sera. It was not without wax. This Sarah also carried over into our language as caries. It has to do with decay or infection. Uh, your dentist and my dentist to take regular x-rays of our teeth uh, because even teeth that may look very, very healthy may not be healthy inside. Sinacera. We see that you are Sinacera. A.J. Jacobs is the man I told you about a couple of weeks ago who decided that he was going to live a whole year taking the Bible literally. Now, Mr. Jacobs is Jewish by birth, but he said he was a non-observant Jew. Didn't go to the temple, didn't go to the synagogue regularly. He decided this was a clever idea just to see if he could live a whole year taking the Bible seriously, literally, and then write a book about it. That's what he did. So in his book, he talks about some of these teachings that gave him greatest trouble. One of them says, you shall not lie. He said, I, I really didn't realize how many times a day I was telling things that weren't true. I never considered them big things. But, for example, when my wife found out I was using the Internet at Starbucks, she asked, how much do you pay for that access? And he said, I told her $8. I was really paying 10, but I didn't think she'd be as upset with 8 as she would be with 10. So I told her 8. She said one morning, it was uh, my turn to feed our little two-year-old Jasper, and he was saying, bagel, bagel. I looked in the pantry. I didn't see any bagels. So I called out to his mother, where are the bagels? She said, we're out of bagels. Give him an English muffin. He doesn't know the difference. He said, I got the English muffins and I took them to the table and Jasper looked at me and asked, bagel? And I said, no, it's an English muffin, but you will love it. And he started screaming. He threw a tantrum. The mother heard this and came running in and said, what happened? And he said, I told him we have no bagels. And she said, I told you to tell him it's a bagel. He doesn't know the difference. But Mr. Jacobs writes in his book, I believe one day he will know the difference. And I resolved that I wanted him to believe me. That someday when he asked me, is this a bagel? And I said, no, it's an English muffin. He would believe me. Sincere.
two years now, I've been in one Jewish Christian dialogue group, and I've become very fond of the people who are in that group. We've read a lot of books together over the last 22 years and discussed one afternoon late each month. And I still remember one of the women early on saying to us, I don't care what you sing on Sunday. I don't really care what your prayers are on Sunday. I don't care if you light candles or don't light candles. I just care about how you treat me Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. When I see you, how do you treat me? Halakha is about how you behave. How you behave. Jesus was asked about that. What are the two great commandments? I'm going to, we're coming to those right away in our worship here. What, what is the greatest commandment? Remember he said right from the Torah, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, he is one. You will worship this one with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. By the way, the second sort of like the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if you followed his teachings, you could tell he was saying, you have to be willing to put yourself out for the well-being of another The way of God is that you trust this one true God and what he's taught you is true about the way this world ought to function. Put yourself out for the well-being of another. Elizabeth Sherrill has written about a wedding she was really looking forward to. The groom was a particular favorite of hers and she said, I was looking forward to seeing him married to the young woman of his choice. But a few weeks before the wedding, she said, I was asked if I would look after his great aunt who is blind. I thought, oh, no, all through this wedding and the reception that follows, I'm supposed to be sort of dragging along this woman who cannot see. But I knew no way to turn it down. And I said, of course, of course, I would love to do that. So she went and picked up the great aunt the day of the wedding. She said, I wanted to be sure we had plenty of time. So we got there a little bit early. And as I was leading and guiding her into the church, I could hear laughter in the bride's room. All those people were having such a good time, and I wanted to be in there with them. And I was out here with her. We were early, so we went in and sat down in the church, and she started whispering to me, what does this church look like? I said, beg your pardon? She said, what is its shape? And she said, well, it's... It's shaped like a cross. It's longer in one way, shorter in the other. It's the shape of a cross. Is it Gothic? The woman asked. Well, no, she said, I don't think it's Gothic. Is it made out of stone? Yes, it is made out of stone. Are they all the same size or some bigger than others? I said, well, they're not quite all the same size. Some are bigger than others. What color stones are they? I said, gray. Are there stained glass windows in this church? And I said, yes. Are they pictures of something, or are they just modern stuff, designs? They're pictures, I said. Could you tell me what's in the pictures? And she said, I went round the room telling her. When I'd mentioned that there was a woman, Mary, what is she wearing? Jesus, how tall is he in that picture? We went all the way around the room by telling her about every picture. Finally, she even asked, what color is this cushion we're sitting on? And I told her that. By the time the organist started playing, I had seen the church I had been attending for 20 years in a way I'd never seen it before. And when the wedding was over and it was time to move on to the reception, I was so glad that I was getting to take her to the reception because I knew I was going to see things I'd never seen before. How many musicians? 
What are they going to play? Who's dancing with whom? What is she wearing? How tall is he? I would see. By the time I had taken her home and gotten to my own house, Elizabeth writes, I'd had more fun at this wedding than any I'd ever been to in my whole life. I had seen things, experienced things, understood things I never would have because I was trying really hard, finally trying really hard, to put myself out for the well-being of another. We perceive, teacher, that you teach the way of God with truth. Number three, that you show deference to no one. I don't use the word deference very often. Do you use that word? I don't use deference four or five times a day. So I looked it up in the dictionary, and of course I could see what the root word is, and I hear it more at a coin toss of a football game than any other time. They've chosen to defer. To defer. When I was playing football, we never deferred. Defer means I don't want to choose. You choose. I don't want to make a decision. You make a decision. That's what you do. Um, Our coaches had such confidence. They'd say, give us that ball. Kick that ball to us. We want that ball. Nowadays, the coaches say, I don't want to choose. You choose. Second half, I'll choose. You defer. And it means that you're letting someone else take the place of your decision-making or you are basing your decision on what you think are the wishes, likes, dislikes of somebody else. We perceive, teacher, that you show deference to no one. You don't let anyone affect what you think, what you believe, or what you do. Let's go back to Mr. Jacob's book. He said another thing he learned when he seriously started reading the Bible was, A commandment over in the Torah that says, Every time you have eaten, you shall give thanks to God. Now, he said, I know that a lot of people pray before they eat. This commandment said, pray after you eat. So, I decided, I'm going to give that a try. I really wasn't a praying man. But after I ate, I started praying, because that's what the Bible said I ought to do. Said so one day I'd had a fairly light lunch. I mean, not so much of it. I love hummus, he said, and this was really wonderful hummus. And I had some pita bread, and I was scooping up this wonderful hummus with this pita bread. Pita bread. And when I got through, I remembered I was supposed to thank God, and I started thinking about those chickpeas from which the hummus was made. I wonder who planted those seed, who weeded the field who picked the peas, how they were shelled, how they were processed. Uh, I even imagine truck drivers driving this produce, uh, people stocking the shelves in supermarkets, uh, cashiers taking one's money. Uh, Hummus also has olive oil in it. This did for sure. And so I started thinking, whose olive trees Were these huge groves belonging to some rich person who had machines they could hook onto the tree and shake it until all the olives fell off? Or was this a small farmer who had only three or four olive trees maybe and picked every olive by hand? How was the oil extracted from the olives? How was it processed? How did it get to the store and so on? Pita bread? Wheat? Who grew the wheat? Did it rain enough? Not rain enough? Who drove the truck? 
How was it harvested? Was it cut by hand? Was it cut with huge machines? I read about one now that can go four miles an hour through a wheat field. Um, How was it harvested? And then he said, you know, it changes everything, doesn't it? When you stop and say a prayer after you've eaten. You see, Jesus did defer to one, to his Father who had sent him. And Mr. Jacobs was learning something about deferring to that one. Uh, Making one's decisions, living one's life based on what that one has taught you really matters. Number four, teacher, we perceive that you show partiality to no one. That was true. He could be nice to very powerful people, but he was nice to tax collectors and prostitutes, very poor people whom he met, people who had been ill for 38 years, a man lying by the pool for more than two decades. He cared, walked up, spoke, made things happen. You show no partiality. Daniel Shantz is a literature teacher. He said that one of his favorite persons in literature was named Phyllis Wheatley. He said, Phyllis Wheatley was captured down in Africa by slave traders. She was put on a slave ship, and this particular ship went north up into New England. A very wealthy, prominent family in Boston bought her. She was a tiny child, painfully thin, uh, nearly starved to death on the ship over. This family bought her, freed her, made her a part of their family, not a slave to the family, a child in the family. They taught her to read and to write. They read books to her. They sang with her. She came to this country in 1761, and her family were prominent enough that at around the dinner table at night, they would talk about the war effort. Could they defeat the British? Could they not defeat the British? And the name that this little girl heard mentioned over and over was George Washington. George Washington. And she got the idea this man must be a really good man. He's really working hard for us. And she asked her new parents if she could write to the general. And they said, why, sure. And so she wrote a series of notes And they were prominent enough, they got them delivered to George Washington. There had been a lull in the fighting, and he invited them to bring this little girl to the camp to meet him. And he sat down with her and gave her 30 minutes of his time just visiting with this little African-American child. Daniel Shantz says, I tell my students, this child could have no idea that this huge man, six feet three, very big man in his day and time, would be the first president of the United States of America. And I'm sure General Washington had not a clue that this child would become the first woman African-American poet in America. Yet each was important, so important to the one who had created them both. Teacher, we perceive that you show no partiality. You seem to love and care for all of them. Let's get back to the tax. So what do you think? Do we have to pay this tax or not? And he said, uh, do you have a coin? 
And every scholar I read this week said, don't you find it amazing that here on the Temple Mount, in the Temple Precincts, the holiest spot in all of Jerusalem, they can produce a coin, a Roman coin, considered dirty, filthy, improper in the Temple Precincts. They have one, and the image on it would have been that of Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius Caesar reigned for 23 years during most of Jesus' lifetime. It would have been Tiberius' image. Not only did it have his name around the rim of that coin, but it also had an ascription to him as being king of the kings of the earth, an ascription given to, to Jesus in the Revelation, uh, king of kings and lord of lords and so on. They had this coin, blasphemous to good Jews, the image of an emperor claiming to be king of kings. So he calls them hypocrites. Hypocrite's a person who wears a mask, appears to be one thing, and is something else underneath. You hypocrites. Let me tell you what to do. Whose image is on the coin? It's what it literally says. Whose image is on the coin? Well, Caesar, Tiberius Caesar. Okay, then I suggest you give to Tiberius Caesar that which bears his image, and you give to God that which bears the image of God. Dr. Robert Gundry says, Is Jesus alluding to Genesis 1? That humans were created in the image of God. That what you have that bears the image of God is you. Is he saying what Paul would say in one of his letters? Bring yourselves, your souls and bodies as living sacrifice to him, wholly acceptable to him. Bring you. Other scholars didn't see that so much. They simply said it means surely you can be as serious about your obligation to God as you can about your obligation to the Caesar. Surely you can be as serious about an estimate of giving card to the church as you can about the U.S. Treasury every April 15 and the Oklahoma Tax Commission that you pay on a regular basis, that you bring to God what belongs to God, you and everything entrusted to you. Have you seen there's a new biography out about Charlie Schultz, the guy who drew the Peanuts cartoon strip for 50 years? It's not altogether complimentary of Charlie Schultz. It points out some things about him you might not have known. Some of his family have reacted negatively to that. They didn't think those little things were true, nor should have been put in the book. But there's some really good parts of the book, and I, I think if you liked the Peanuts strip, you'd find a lot of insight. Charles Schultz was a little boy who grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota. Grew up very poor. His father was a barber. Uh, I remember when we paid 25 cents for a haircut, 50 cents for a haircut. That's what his dad got in St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, When Charles was just a little boy, his mother had cancer. We didn't know much to do about cancer back then, not much to do about the horrible pain of cancer back then. And so he would come home from school and find his mother racked with pain, unable to cook or do anything. Uh, And he would write later about how hungry he would be waiting for his father to come home from the barber shop. He said when he went to school, he was smaller than most, wore glasses, drew on every piece of paper he could get his hands on. Just from the time he got here, he was drawing. But bigger kids pushed him around and how he hated that. So in his strips, you have a lot of those things being played out. All the little children in the Peanuts cartoon strip 
show how devastating childhood can be. Feel put upon. You're little in a people, big, big people all around you. One of the strips years ago, Charlie Brown, who was Charlie Schultz in many ways, says, nobody loves me. Nobody. And suddenly Violet and Patty have heard him and they scream out together, we love you, Charlie. And he says, but I want somebody important to love me. Well, Charlie, somebody really important loves you and asks you to bring back to him everything you got that bears his image.